Dear product-led family, today we will talk about CRO conversion rate optimization. Everybody knows we should be experimenting, right? But rare champions do that right. With us is Jeremy Aperson, founder and chief growth officer at Conversion Guides. He is a CRO veteran with more than 14 years of experience working for Facebook, LinkedIn, Twilio, Square, and many others. In this episode, he will reveal how to implement his proven process to ROI in 90 days. But before we dive into all the interesting stuff, let's warm him up a little bit. So Jeremy, a little bird told me that you like to spend time near lakes. Yeah. Yeah. I have a home in Lake Tahoe. So any place close to mountains and lakes at the same time is uh, is beautiful and amazing. So I feel very grateful. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and perfect. we definitely go out on the boat. Yeah. <laughs> Ski. Yeah. It's amazing. Fantastic. So welcome to the podcast, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for having me. I'm so excited about this. (laughs) It's going to be great. It's going to be great. Like you have so much awesome stuff to share. I read your um, post on LinkedIn all the time. Let's start with a very simple definition. So we all know that CRO means different things to different people. How do you define it? Yeah, that's actually a great question because as CRO formally has existed for whatever, you know, 15, 17, 18 years, whatever. and everybody defines it completely differently and argues over the name. I think defining things is super important. And I have a contrarian definition for this. So there's basically four components of how like, I articulate what I think CRO is. It's one, a comprehensive process. Two, for strategic research and iterative testing that measurably drives results online. So like, if you break those four parts, like open basically, then what you're looking at is like, most people don't think about it like a comprehensive process. They think like ad hoc testing setups and maybe test. It's not, it's a growth process. And if you think about it like that, it changes the way that you like function and operate. I don't know if you just want me to like ramble about this for a while, but, <laughs> but no, it's, it's, guys, it's like because like we are literally talking all the time about one layer that you explain in your model, right? So we are all the time talking about like which color of the bottom would convert the best and stuff like that. Little do we know how do we make stuff up? Like how do we even go to the line of thinking that that specific button should be? green or something like that. So let's talk about war stories for a sec, because you're a veteran, conversion rate (laughs) optimization veteran. Do excite us with a couple of good stories, how your experiments succeed. Like what can we expect if we implement this process? Yeah, that's a good one. I have a pretty radical one. So, Oh, and by the way, sorry to interrupt, but if we could narrow it down to product-led companies. So SaaS. Okay. Yeah. 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 Totally understand. Yeah. And that's where I was going with that. So yeah, one SaaS business kind of lower traffic site wasn't fully sold on CRO kind of had to like nudge them a little bit to even get the process started. We ran, so over a 12 week period of time, we're targeting, okay, based on your traffic, let's try to get 12 tests live to like onboard this. So test one fails to move the needle. Test two, losing test. Test three, losing test. Test four, flat test. Test five. So we literally get eight tests in and nothing has moved the needle. Now they're pissed off. (laughs) So this is the iterative process of CRO, right? I think whatever it was, nine or 10 tests in, we hit and we drove 27% more leads to a demo form, essentially. So that totally transformed their sales pipeline, right? So the power of CRO is two things. One, it's the iterative process of learning through experimentation. But two is any one winning test 
can change your numbers entirely. So it's, it's pretty cool to like see that happen in like short timelines, you know, like 60, 70 days, you know, so that's kind of one example that stands out. As it should, because it's really fascinating, like the stamina and all the willpower invested in the testing process and just like the faith that it is the right thing to do, right? Because I don't know how is it like in your experience, but what's your average percentage rate of successful tests when you are running them for clients? Yeah, I have like tons of database information on this. So we do these CRO maturity assessments. It's like a 33-factor framework. And we basically analyze, like observe, analyze, and like crunch the numbers on how well people are doing with CRO. So like because we collected all that data, here's what we found. Like when you're wildly guessing, you're just like throwing tests out there. You're going to have 12% of the time, you're going to have like validated wins. If you take an ad hoc data-driven approach, you can double that to 24 so if you're being customer focused changer. and you're pulling in data points and you're using, yeah, it's a game changer, right? And like that transforms like the ROI. If you have a comprehensive process with a really strong team, you can push that north of 30%. So like for three years, I tracked that, had a really awesome like zero team I built from scratch and we had 37% across all clients over three years. And it's not even the team per se, it's the process. It's putting the process in place the right way. Like that's what really drives the results. I'm literally gagged. I would challenge you that you are not experimenting bold enough, but I know that's not the case. <laughs> You're pioneering like uh, different stuff. Let's talk about process a little bit more because you mentioned it a couple of times. Not sure that everybody here is on the same page. So how do you define the CRO process? Yeah, so there's there's two aspects of this. There's the research process and there's the actual testing process. So with the testing process, we think of it in terms of like an assembly line, essentially, right? There's multiple different skills you need to run a high-performing CRO program. So you need a designer, you need a copywriter, you need somebody that can do the development work. You need some like a data scientist to be able to like understand testing methodology and like how you interpret results. So what we're basically doing is we're creating workflows. So it's a process, it's a workflow of like, how do we accelerate the rate at which we can launch tests? but still structuring them effectively. So it's kind of a balancing act of like, we want to create this fast moving assembly line and we have to have all those people communicating to be able to push tests live at a high velocity because that increases our results. On the research side, our process is we want to solve specific business problems, right? So like we want to solve market positioning problems, we want to solve business problems or we want to solve customer problems. So the research roadmap that a business is going to have in any 90-day window is like, what are the biggest things we want to focus on and solve for? So if we want to solve, like, how do we position and differentiate, you know, against like other software companies, then what we need to do is competitive analysis, right? So like, we need to get a pulse, kind of a thumb on the pulse of like what everybody else is saying. And then we need to say something different. <laughs> like that's all positioning is really, right? <laughs> and it seems simple and straightforward. And a lot of times it actually can be, but so there's kind of those two processes and it's what I call a dual track approach to CRO. We're pushing both of those things like forward, like at the same time. I don't know. Does that help like conceptualize that? Totally. And it's also like brings up a good discussion where the best ideas for the experiments are coming from. So if I understood correctly, your point of view in your experience, they're coming from running a rigid research process and not just like daydreaming about, oh, this competitor has this, let's test this out. So how do you iterate on what to test? Like what is better than another thing? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's first talk about all the ways that you should not be creating test hypotheses. So, <laughs> love it. Swiping from, yeah, this is the best way to like get to this answer. So, swiping from blogs, copying direct competitors, copying industry leaders. Like, we think they're testing this, so let's do that too. Or we see this thing on their site, they must do it right. Brainstorming, like, these are bad ways to create high quality like test hypotheses. So what we actually want to do, the optimal state, if you're trying to get the best results possible, is we pull one or more data points together to get an understanding of like not only the test hypothesis, but how we structure the variation. So like an example would be like, let's say, you know, on like a demo page, like let's say, okay, so we use scroll map data to see that the FAQ section on a page was not being seen. But what we saw with session recordings, like being able to kind of anonymously spy on users, is the people who went down and actually opened and clicked and read all the FAQ section actually converted at like 3x rate. Okay, so now we have those two data points. Plus we have, we pulled chat transcript data where they were asking basically the same questions over and over and over, like an intercom. So now we have like these three different data points, right? So it's like, what do we need to do? We need to overcome these specific objections and we need to answer these specific questions. So the way we're framing this up is we're altering the content in the FAQ section. We're moving it up right below the form so everybody can see it. And we're making it super prominent by like opening it up so they can read it without having to click stuff. So that's a 14% lift in leads. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that's what we're doing is we're targeting different research methods. And what we're like, my term for this is we want to get a 360 degree understanding of customers. So each of those is a different view Right. And if you only have one piece, you don't have a complete view and you don't know how to structure a test. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you criticized brainstorming beforehand, but I think like it's a beautiful activity where you just like get the team aligned, not just like brainstorming from thin air. It's not like intellectual masturbation, but to like start <laughs> with a solid research with multiple data points. But there is still like some sort of human element to it, if not sooner than in prioritization. So what sort of prioritization process are you guys using in order to select the experiments that are most likely to win. Yeah. So there's actually like two important things you're touching on. And it's good you like push back on this. So like we do a heuristic analysis is our first step to be able to get testing started rapidly. And it's basically, it's similar to your, like your process that you're like working through with like your teams that you work with and stuff. And it's like pull designers and analysts and developers and product people and whoever you can pull into a room, right? And it's like, hey, let's shred this apart because it's going to create our initial batch of tests that we want to run, right? And we need a lot of raw materials and we want to get everybody excited and we want to get everybody bought in and kind of like, you know, just basically excited about the project, right? So we do that with every client. When I say brainstorming is bad, it's when brainstorming is the only way you come up with tests for a year, right? So like, that's a very important distinction. <laughs> it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As far as prioritizing it's complex and proprietary, but like, let me try to do my best to just like give some examples of this. So like we have a 10 factor prioritization framework and the way that we came about this is like iterating on it and tying results, program level results back to the prioritization framework and continuing to like work through the factors of what has a higher probability of being a winning test. And there's 10 discrete factors that we use. We have a tool for this now that we use with like all our clients a couple components of that that are most important. Yeah. So one is if a test does not have a data point, it's not a test yet. 
So we can backlog that and we can go find data to support it, but we will not run that test. Like 100% of the time, I kill that test idea and backlog it. Typically, we're looking for two or three points, like what I just, like the example I just gave. So that already is going to dramatically increase the sophistication of your test hypotheses and improve your results. The other things that we look at are like traffic volume versus baseline conversion rate. Like how quickly can we validate on this test? Because if you're only pulling a low traffic like demo page versus the home page, like different parts of the funnel. But, you know, so like these are just factors that we weigh against each other, like level of dependencies. If you have a high level of development or product team time that you need to be able to structure a test, that doesn't mean take that big swing test. It just means you have to weight that against, do we want to spend 20 dev hours on this one test or do we want to break that across four tests? So like these are some of the like components that exist. But I don't want to spend too much time going in. It gets pretty wonky. <laughs> no, no, no. I love it. Because what I see again and again is just like people having those random ideas. So why don't we like add this weird field that people would magically subscribe for a newsletter and then they put it on some low traffic page and then they are disappointed because test is not even valid. Uh, let's talk about tooling and the statistical viability of the test for a bit. So what kind of tooling would you recommend Recommend uh, to our audience for product-led products, product-led product. Did you hear that? <laughs> that was awesome. Um, and uh, what sort of tooling is kind of normal? Like, is a good starting stack? And of course, which test is a no-no? Okay, interesting. Yeah, let's break those out. So first, as far as like tech stack, I mean, again, we break it down in like what are our research tools and what are our testing tools. So from a testing perspective, and usually, every, I mean, everybody has analytics in place, right? So like. That's just whatever they have is what we're going to use. And you can upgrade that from GA to mixed panel or, or whatever, you know, but that's like a kind of already set for like actual testing. It depends on what you're trying to do. Most of the time when teams or businesses are starting CRO, they don't want to throw a huge budget at it. So they'll use free or affordable tools. And as they get more sophisticated, they'll upgrade later. So like you can upgrade from... Google Optimize and like, hey, we're getting, we get traction. We show some ROI with CRO. And then we go to Intellimize and we start getting fancier with uh, being able to run a lot of campaigns and variations that are personalized. So that kind of depends. Like what's your price point? What's the budget you can afford? And also how sophisticated is your team? Because you don't need the fanciest tools if you don't have the right skills on the team and you don't have the process in place yet. But on the research side, there's a lot of cool things that we can use like Qualtrics is like an awesome tool, right? Like you can basically, you can pull in like customer data from a number of different research methods. So like, there's a lot of things that you can do to make research easier on your team. Part of that is improve the skills of the team or hire people on the team. Part of it is you need the tech in place. Like you need to have the cool tools that help you better understand like what customers are doing and thinking. Fantastic. Love it. So when people get hyped about CRO, it's usually, yay, we will run an A-B test. This is a common disease that we have as marketers who are very into shiny things. So yeah. <laughs> disappointingly, <laughs> uh, often, more often than not, we create tests that are not valid, right? And we got all hooked in the tech stack, whereas we maybe ignore the traffic or just like don't necessarily test the right stuff of things. What's a good mindset and playground to get started with that? How could we limit this and set us up for success? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we do have to approach this from the perspective of like most tests are going to fail 
to hit StatSig as a lift-in conversion. And that's got to be part of the expectations that we have internally when we're like selling CRON, when we're like setting expectations with different stakeholders that are not involved in it. So if that's the case, how do you drive the most value from it? Well, every test should teach you something important about, this is like our laundry list of what we're doing. It should teach us something important about our business, our product, our marketing, or our customers. So we're getting strategic insights. And what we're doing is compiling those over time, right? So what we're making is a list of here's what doesn't work is going to be a bigger list than here's what does work, right? So, man, there's just like so many components of this. (laughs) That's a portion of it, right? So like, how do we create a great hypothesis? Even if that test, we know that test isn't going to like move the needle. That's how you do it. The second part of this is like setting the expectations around like what a winning test looks like. So we have data like compiled around that too. So 92% of tests, if they hit stat sig as a lifting conversions is between seven and 15%. So that sets expectations, right? Because the industry like bullshit to be quite honest, (laughs) is it like do these seven things and it'll triple your conversion rates. Every time I read that, like I get more gray hair in my beard (laughs) because it just drives me absolutely crazy. Right. It's just so unrealistic. And it, it disincentivizes teams from sticking with CRO because they have these wildly unrealistic expectations, right? And that's not how it works. So what we're doing is, uh, my analogy is it's like compounding interest, right? Like we're piling together winning tests and insights. We get better at CRO over time and we produce better results over a longer time period. Lovely. Just like, let's go one level Below what we were talking about, let's get very operational now. So you are very famous for your CRO roasts, if I may call them that. So literally (laughs) you going through website and talking shit about them. Uh, But anyways, these are very helpful information and you have done like plenty of those stuff on sales calls, on events, something like that. If you could narrow down like a couple of low-hanging fruits for product-led companies. What is everybody doing wrong? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I appreciate you calling me out for being a notorious shit talker. That's great. That just made my month. That just made 2022 for me. So thanks. <laughs> You're um, <welcome>. Yeah. <laughs> but it is true, right? Like, because that's what an optimizer does. They shred everything apart, like relentlessly with no apologies, right? So no, it's um, very helpful because like, to just like, Sorry to interrupt for a sec, but I mean, it literally us as an expert, like we can get easily annoyed because people are doing the same mistake all over again yeah. and it's just not getting any better. So that was where I was coming from. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and let me lay out the list, right? So I did this thing. I don't know if this is what you're referencing, but I did this like activity with my team recently where we looked at 150 something like product and or solution pages for like SaaS businesses for like growth stage SaaS businesses. And like, here's the stuff that annoys me. One is that's a landing page to some extent, or if they're getting to it internally in their user path, it still functions as a landing page and that's how we treat it. So, you know, whether they're coming from search, social, direct, internal traffic, it's a landing page. Here's what they're doing wrong with their landing pages and product pages. One, what does this product do for me? X, Y, Z. We don't see that. Like, just explain what the thing does, like, in a couple bullet points. People want to see that. But what we do instead is a bunch of jargony stuff and, like, buzzwords and, like, thick walls of text that, like, have embedded SEO keywords. And it's just super annoying. People just want to land on a page and go, what can this thing do for me? Two is, like, 
what is the value proposition? So like the product features, like this is what it actually does. Separately, the value proposition. How is this valuable? Is it going to provide an ROI? Is it going to save me time? Is it going to like transform our processes? Is it going to like whatever the thing is that your product does? The third thing is differentiation. What makes X product different than Y product? Nobody talks about that. So one of the things that we test a lot is comparison charts. Like this is just one way to do this, right? It's like, this is X company, this is Y company. Here's how we do it different. People love that. That's what they want to know, right? That's their like how they're going to make a decision. And the fourth thing is, this is like my the most annoying for me, is, <laughs> and we went through this. This is probably the post you saw. Like zero, zero percent of the 150 pages we looked at told you what is going to happen after they submit their contact information. Like that's just odd, right? Like, are you going to send them 77 emails until they never want to talk to you again? Like that's annoying in general as a, as a marketer, but like what's happening with their contact information? They don't want their email like blown up, you know? Are you going to call them on the phone if they're submitting a phone number or are you just collecting it for the sake of it? Like who are you going to talk to? Like are you going to talk to like like a BDR that's going to like qualify you or are you going to jump straight into a demo? Like why don't we tell them these things, right? Because people want to know. And if you're buying expensive SaaS products, then like, you know, you have to go through the demo. Everybody knows what the process is who has budget to buy tools like this, right? So make it easier for them. Like if you just did those couple things, then, and like iteratively tested against those, like you're going to get a lot of traction. That's fantastic because it's like, it's so basic. These are such fundamental mistakes, but we appear to suck at them again and again. And what I was really curious as you were explaining the first pillar right now is whether you would put this expectation alignment on the content forum itself or would you have it on a thank you page? Okay. Yeah. I mean, we want to do it pre-conversion. That's good. Because we do it, if we do it pre-convert, yeah, yeah, yeah. Reduce friction. Like, so two things happen simultaneously because what does every product web business want? They want more leads and they want higher quality leads for their sales team. And they want both of those things to happen at the same time. Right. (laughs) And that can happen. You, you can do that with testing. So if you're setting the expectations around what the buying process looks like, what the buying criteria are, what the differentiation, when you're explaining those things, you're going to clarify, which can increase conversion rates, but also when they show up, they're better educated. So that sales call is going to go better. The demo is going to go better. It's a higher qualified, like higher quality lead. Perfect. Let's make sure that we link under the episode the resource that you mentioned. So this analysis of 100 plus <laughs> SaaS pages, which will be very, very, very interesting for our listeners. So we are slowly wrapping up. And I guess that whoever is with us by now is interested in implementing or improving CRO process themselves. So could we talk about some good practices of how to make this happen and maybe a couple of differences between internalizing this and outsourcing this? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, because that is the decision, right? It's yes. like build an in-house team. So there's a couple ways you can do it. And this is like part of my book right now that I like was just editing yesterday. I'm waiting going so, for a year. I know. <laughs> it took me that long to do it. So <laughs> you wouldn't think it would because I do this every day, but it's really hard to write a book. So of course. There's a couple paths. Like the first path is you're borrowing resources from a couple different places, pulling together a scrappy small team. Can I get a couple hours of copywriting time, a couple hours of design time, a couple hours of dev time. And then you have one person who's like the solo CRO person or wearing the CRO hat. That's the easiest and cheapest thing to do. It's the easiest way to get started. Building a dedicated team 
is expensive because there's 14 discrete skills that you need to run a high performance Euro program. And you can blend that together with like, you know, three to seven people. But then you start thinking like Silicon Valley level salaries and we're like, okay, now this has gotten very expensive, right? So long-term, that's the best thing that you can do as a business, right? Because CRO is not a short-term tactic. It's a like a long-term growth process, like we talked about. So long-term, like that's what I always support is like, you have to build the internal capabilities. Like you shouldn't be paying an agency forever to do this for you. Like it's a part of your growth process. It's a part of the learning process to be able to like scale and accelerate, like scale your business, accelerate your growth. The good thing about an agency is they have done this, you know, like I've done this 150 plus times, right? So like we have it down to a science. So for the same level that you're going to pay like one Silicon Valley salary, you're going to get, you know, now a 16 person team who have all the capabilities to be able to do this for you, right? So it's a shortcut. And the two things I will say on this are like, one, like any CRO agency is going to be able to step in and like help you set up tests. But most agencies, the traditional agency model is doing everything in a black box. Like we're the opposite of that. We don't want to do things in a black box. We want to actually, um, like in our SOWs, we actually talk about CRO team training and enablement is a core function of what we're doing, enabling their team, which is different, right? So like just a different model, but yeah, that's definitely an important decision. And you want to de-risk the CRO process and how you get started and like the 90 day onboarding, like that's the most important thing because that's where everybody gets stuck. Sounds amazing. I never thought of it so strategically, like, but it does make sense. Like at the beginning, you don't want to go full in and invest into that. If you are not like a hardcore believer, it's easier once you produce solid results to think if you could be doubling down on this. Just like before we say goodbye, Another question popped into my mind. This was not like originally submitted, but I think it's very interesting. Should product-led companies be communicating prices on their web pages? What is your opinion? What's your expertise? Yeah, that's an interesting. That's definitely something you test. Absolutely. So um, on pricing pages, like we optimize a lot of pricing pages. You can, you know, for one SaaS business, showing the price helps improve conversions. For another client, at the same time, if you showed the price, you scared everybody off. So there's not really a way to know necessarily unless you test it. And then there's the framing around it. So like when we think of pricing, we think of it as a function of pricing versus value perception, right? And you can move either of those. You can discount and you're removing friction, right? You can increase your price, better margins, but maybe conversion rates are lower. So it's about how you frame it, right? So like what's the value they can attach? What are the quantifiable metrics you can attach to support the price? That, that's a great line of testing. I love the answer because you said it depends, but you said it in a really intelligent <laughs> manner. No, seriously, because I don't like this one type fits all advices, right? We were ranting against blocks. So seven ways how to increase your conversion rate by 300% before. So I expected yeah. nothing by that of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, with CRO, there's no universal truths. You know what I mean? But we can test and find out. Good spirit, good mindset. All right. So let's maybe just like empower our listeners. How can they get in touch with your awesome work? How can they get more Jeremy into their lives? Yeah. So I share everything. Like this is, this is how I am on LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah. Like I literally don't, I share everything. I like, this is exactly what my blog posts look like on a daily basis. I just share all of these things and rant about it. So yeah, that's the best way. Like that's my favorite thing to do, but you know, 
find me on LinkedIn. I have people ask questions. I will answer the questions. People don't think that I do that, but I actually do. Yeah. And also like, you know, happy to point people in the right direction because, you know, you know this about me. Most people probably don't know this about me, but this is just my life's work and passion, right? So like anything I can do to help like startups in any way I can help do it, like that's my like mission. So love it. Love it. And just to confirm information from my side, he does share a lot of awesome insights on LinkedIn. So I'm his LinkedIn fan. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's true. Cool. Thanks for listening to this episode. Get in touch with Jeremy. Definitely. If you want to just learn more about this awesome ecosystem and stretch your testing muscle to the entirely new level so that we will no longer read the blog posts, but instead run informed tests and hopefully make the best decisions we can. Thanks for listening to the episode. And of course, Jeremy, thanks for being an awesome guest. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having me.